Have you ever known the horrible experience of condemnation? And, and you've been judged harshly, or cast aside maybe, or maybe misunderstood, or, or even maligned in some way. And then that thrilling release of somebody coming to your rescue. Or something restoring your dignity and somebody showing compassion. That's what takes place in this story here in John chapter 8 today. Compassion is shown by a God of compassion. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time, and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to actually continue what we started last time about compassion. Compassion. We talked about the Good Samaritan last time and his compassion. But we're going to talk today about condemnation or compassion. It seems like it's one or the other with some people, but condemnation or compassion. And here in John chapter 8, we find this familiar story about this woman taken in adultery, and we're going to read the first 11 verses here. It says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast the stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman... Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Condemnation or compassion? Let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless this time in thy word. And we thank you for the scriptures and the clarity of the subject and Father, as we talk about it today, we just pray that you'd help us to look within and see where we stand on this issue. And dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to be compassionate Christians. I pray for those who are here without Christ, under condemnation, that they would realize the compassion that you have for them and come to Christ today. For we pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about what to deal with this week relative to what we talked about last time. And of course, this is a time of the year when we're kind of focusing on love, if you think about what's coming up. And we're thinking about compassion. And certainly the Bible gives us a lot of examples 
about this subject of compassion. But here's a classic. And so I want you in your mind's eye today to go back with me about 2,000 years as we uh, unfold some very wonderful truths from this passage here. Everything in the Bible has been placed there for a reason. You ever thought about that? I mean, all these stories, they just weren't coincidental. The things that happened from Genesis to Revelation, of course, were on purpose. But especially in the ministry and the life of Christ, we find so many scenarios. We find Him crossing so many people's paths. And stories like this were foreordained, no doubt, in the mind of God to teach us some things. We find here, first of all, a glaring example of condemnation. The very word just has a sting to it, doesn't it? Condemnation. Condemnation. Who wants a bony finger placed in their sternum of condemnation and finding guilt on our part having to admit, yeah, we did it. You know, deliverance from condemnation begins with compassion. And who hasn't been condemned in some way in the past? I'm thinking of a preacher friend of mine who's a missionary in Africa today. And he was saved a little after I got saved many years ago. And he's, he's given his testimony before me, uh, for, uh, to me before, and, and it's such a blessing. I, 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 can't, I can't, I guess, give it all to you here for lack of time. But he talked about how he had done something without going into detail. And he said he felt so condemned. And he said when he heard the gospel of forgiveness, he was overjoyed and actually one of the few people I heard of who was actually rejoicing almost in laughter as he was getting saved to know that his condemnation could be forgiven. Have you ever known the horrible experience of condemnation? And and you've been judged harshly, or cast aside maybe, or maybe misunderstood, or, or even maligned in some way. And then that thrilling release of somebody coming to your rescue, or something restoring your dignity, and somebody showing compassion. That's what takes place in this story here in John chapter 8 today. Compassion is shown by a God of compassion. We read in Isaiah 50 and verse 9, Behold, the Lord God will help me. So who is he that shall condemn me? Notice the words of the prophet here. The Lord will help me. Who is he that will condemn me? And in this story, we find a woman under condemnation, but it's Christ to the rescue, and he shows her compassion. Now as we talk about this this subject of condemnation or compassion, we see several things. First of all, we see what I call conditional mercy. That's where we normally stand, isn't it? We have mercy, but it's conditional. We find that Christ said in Luke 6, 37, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. And we're told here to not condemn. We're told here to forgive, and yet we all have our condemnation, don't we? In fact, Here's the problem, folks. I have the problem. You have the problem. We all have our pet sins. We all have things that are sensitive to us especially. We all have things that really hit home. For some reason, there are pet peeves. You know, I think after Benedict Arnold betrayed George Washington, Washington had a pet peeve for the rest of his life. He probably couldn't stand traitors. And normally it goes back to something we've experienced. And so we have this conditional mercy. If somebody does that thing, Well, I'll tell you, there's just not going to be mercy. So what's your pet peeve? What's your mercy? And and where does it stop? And how is it conditional? How is mine conditional? I remember my mother often saying growing up, she said, I can't stand a sneak. Whether it was one of us kids or whether it was one of our friends that we brought over and we had some sneaky friends as well. And, And the funny thing about mom, she could always see through them right away. 
But I heard her say that many times. I can't stand to sneak. Evidently, there was something in her past that made that a pet peeve to her. And she just couldn't stand somebody who was sneaky. And maybe for you it's a cheat or it's a liar. Whatever it is, you, you can't overlook it. You can't let it ride. You can't show mercy. It bothers you. You know, in the uh, quarter of a century now that I've been pastoring, it's been interesting to see the, the pet peeves that some people have. And uh, the things they're passionate about. And it, it irks them if, if others uh, aren't irked by what they're irked by. You know what I mean? If they're not passionate about what they're passionate about, if they don't have the same pet peeves as they have, uh, they have really a, a limited, a conditional mercy. And we all have it. We have mercy, but we're limited on it. And we'd rather not admit it. You know, we can hear a story about a, a 13-year-old young man in a, in, a, in a big city being stabbed to death. And that can, that can bother us. I mean, that can really bother us. And then we hear as the facts come in that well, it was gang-related. And suddenly, well, it doesn't bother us quite as much, does it? And we say, you know, what goes around comes around and live by the sword, die by the sword, you know, that kind of thing. That's what I'm talking about, conditional mercy. We can hear that, that somebody was in a horrible car accident. And we say, oh, I feel so sorry for them. Then we hear that they were driving drunk. And we go, oh, that's too bad. Or we can hear even this, that somebody's killed in a car accident. We say, oh, that's tragic. And then we read on, and it says they weren't wearing their seatbelt. And suddenly we're going, well, you know what? It's, it's kind of their own fault here. And that's just human nature. We have poetic justice. That's what it's been called. We have conditional mercy. And we say what goes around comes around. That's, and that's just the way we are. That's the way we're made. That's, that's the way we're wired. And so here we have a woman, and, and she's going to be condemned to death. They're going to stone her to death here in John chapter 8. And we say, well, that's horrible. But then we know the facts of the matter, and the fact is, she was caught in adultery. And we say, well, you know, that's, that's too bad now. And what's it mean when we are compassionate? What does it mean when, when we care about somebody else? Well, compassion, according to Webster, means sorrow for another's misfortune with a desire to help. And so it's more than a conditional mercy, it is deep pity, but it's more than just pity. In fact, com compassion is not the same thing as pity. You know, you can, you can pity somebody and stand back with your arms folded and, and even glaring that kind of thing, but, but compassion is rolling up your sleeves. Compassion is getting involved. Now, as we look at the woman here taken in adultery, the setting is very simple. Actually, the chapter before ends in verse 53 by saying, and every man went unto his own house. And so the day before ends, everybody goes home, the scribes and the Pharisees, they go back plotting, they have a scheme on their mind. Jesus Christ goes wherever he can. Bethany's not too far from here, so maybe he goes to the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, or, or maybe he goes to the upper room of John Mark's mother, I don't know, but wherever him and the disciples go, it, it says, and every man went unto his own house. Well, chapter 8 opens with the next day. Verse 1 says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Notice we find her put before Christ, the mob brings her in, all eyes are on her, no regard really for her so much as him. 
It's not the woman that's the, the, the issue here. It's Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees hated him. This was a plot. And so they, they, they're looking for a way to accuse him. They're looking for a way to get rid of this man, basically. And so Christ is sitting, we're told here, and he's teaching, and all of a sudden, with no regard for the lesson, this mob comes. And the class is interrupted, basically. And they bring this woman in before him and, and, and mention her adultery, and they say, well... What are you going to do about this? What do you have to say about this? And it's really a great drama. You know, every ministry really has its scribes and its Pharisees. Every ministry is interrupted by people like this, by Pharisees like this. And by the way, the greater the ministry, the more Pharisees there are that will try and destroy that ministry. And sometimes they come from without. We've had them from without over the years here in this church. That's one thing. But sometimes they come from within or they come from the brethren. And as the ministry grows and as it becomes stronger, we can expect those scribes and those Pharisees, those who don't like the work of Christ going forward, and they're going to try and interrupt it. But Jesus Christ even had them. That comforts me. And so Christ has these scribes and these Pharisees, these troublemakers come in, and we find here, first of all, the conditional mercy Secondly, we see the condemned malefactor. In verse 3, it says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Notice, they bring this woman in. They shove this woman into the midst of this, this scenario here with no regard, no feeling for her whatsoever. They'd caught this woman in the act of adultery. This is very delicate here. This was, this was very embarrassing. They had pulled her from a partner. And they now had her in their grasp. And they're waiting for an answer and saying, Well, Master, I'm, I'm sure with contempt, Master, what sayest thou? Now, this was a different day than the day and age in which we live in. We, we have our expressions for adultery today, don't we? And, and we talk about it being a fling. And we say, well, I had a fling, or I had an affair, and, or I, I've got a part-time love, that kind of thing. And we have minimized it. In fact, we laugh at it now in America, about housewives cheating on their husbands. And that's comedy. We become very calloused. And we don't even call it adultery anymore. May I challenge you to call it what God calls it? Adultery. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. In fact, it was serious. We find in Deuteronomy 22, for those who committed it, in verse 24 it says, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. So thou shalt put away evil from among you. God calls it evil, and God had them both put to death. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Think about how less of a population we'd have in the United States today if we still perform this. But it was civil law, and that's what they did. They stoned them to death. Now, verse number 4, it says, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Notice in your Bible that word taken. It means seized. It means apprehended. They seized her in the act of adultery. They apprehended her in the midst of adultery. It literally in the Greek means overtaken. She was overtaken and it denotes that she resisted. And so picture in your mind's eye them dragging her away screaming. And you say, why? Because of sure death. But not a lethal injection or not some calm way of dying. 
but being stoned to death. Stoned to death. No wonder she would have been screaming. No wonder they would have had to apprehend her, apprehend her and take her away. Now, how did this happen? Was this a setup? Was this a trap even to this gal? Is she going to be a scapegoat here? I find it interesting in the whole scenario that she's brought in alone, but the man isn't. There's no man here. What's the deal? Again, notice in Deuteronomy 22:24, then ye shall bring them both unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. It's a plurality here. So where's the man? It takes two to commit adultery, doesn't it? It has to be something mutual to be adultery. If one is resisting, it's rape. But this is adultery. It takes two. By the way, there would be no, there would be no harlot across our land if it weren't for the lusts of men that were inflamed, basically here. And, and so the law wouldn't overlook it if there was not another man here. There was another man here. Did he escape? I don't think so. This was a group of men. They caught her. They had caught him. You say, well, was he deliberately set free? Maybe, quite possibly. Might have even been one of them. It might have been a setup. And why her? Well, women were just treated second rate back at that time. She was expendable, okay? Regardless of whatever it was, it was a clever setup. And if Jesus said, all right, go ahead and stone her, they would say, ah, where's all that compassion you've been preaching about? If he said, uh, let her go they would say, well, you're trampling on the law here. You know better than that. The law says in Deuteronomy 22, very clearly she's to be stoned to death. You say, well, how could there be any, any question about it? Because the Jews were not running themselves at this time. The Romans were. So it was kind of a gray area here. And it hadn't been that way for a while here otherwise. And so here's the Pharisees saying, well, can you just picture their hands on their hips? Well, what are you going to do about this? We see the conditional mercy and we see the condemned malefactor. Thirdly, we see the compassionate Messiah. Notice in verse 5, they say, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. We find something here in this passage very interesting. It's the only time Jesus does it in the whole Bible. It's the only place in the whole Bible that I've been able to find where you find Jesus Christ writing. There's nowhere else. I mean, he's preaching, he's doing miracles, he's doing other things, but there's nowhere else in the Bible we find him actually writing. But he's writing here. Verse 6 says, wrote on the ground. I looked up that word wrote in the Greek. It's the Greek word grapho. Isn't that interesting? We get our word graphics from it. Actually, it's, it's descriptive writing. He's describing something here. He's, he's doing it in the dirt. It, it actually speaks of engraving, and it, it speaks of describing something and what you're etching into that surface. So here he is. I think it's fine Judean dirt there, and he's writing in it. Have you ever done that? I was explaining something uh, this past winter to uh, one of the fellows in the church who was working on the electrical over on the new dorm, and and I, it was hard to explain, and so there was a snowbank there, <laughs> okay? Uh, there's snowbanks everywhere then. And, and I started drawing a picture in the snowbank and putting measurements on there and so on and so forth. You ever done that? When we were kids, we used to play sandlot football. 
And it was basically a dirt field. And so if, if, if we were calling a play, we'd get down and, and we'd start riding in the dirt. All right, Timmy, you go out and turn around. And, and Scotty, you, you do a slant. And Johnny, you do a post. And, and we'd make this plan in the dirt and everybody would go out. And, and then the guy would run the ball anyway, you know. But, but you'd ride in the dirt. And we find out Jesus is doing that here. He's writing in the dirt. He's grapho. He's scribing something into that dirt. And he's actually describing something. It's descriptive writing. So what is he describing here? That's interesting. I don't give anything to know what he wrote there. I have my theories and queries, and, and maybe you do, but I happen to think he was writing the sins of these Pharisees in the dirt there. And so there he is, and he writes the word liar. And he writes over here, embezzler. And, and he puts over here, uh, bitter. And he mentions this guy and he puts jealous. And he mentions that guy and he puts thief. And this guy and he puts covetous. And he basically could, go, could have gone down the Ten Commandments and, and th- these men would have been guilty of things like dishonoring their parents and lust and, uh, and, and cheating and lying and, and everything else the Ten Commandments mentions here. And so we find out here whatever he wrote, it cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. Notice verse 7. It says, So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He says, If you're without sin, go ahead and start chucking rocks here. Now, what was the issue? Well, the issue was not so much that they were being judgmental of this gal, but it was hypocritical judgment. Hypocritical judgment. You see, Christ said in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. In fact, there are those who are unscriptural in their practices. And if you draw attention to that and try and help them and point them to Christ, you'll probably hear this passage quoted, Judge not that you be not judged. I remember witnessing to people after I got saved. I remember one in particular. I, I, I was shocked that they knew any Bible, but they knew that verse. <laughs> judge not that you be not judged. And they misunderstand what it's talking about. It, it's not saying it's wrong to expose false doctrine. It's not saying it's wrong to expose error. We should do that. The Bible says mark them. That means point it out. That means have no unfellowship, uh, fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. In fact, Jesus even said, judge righteous judgment. And he even commended somebody one time. He says, thou hast judged rightly. And so Jesus is not talking about never to judge. He's talking about hypocritical judgment. And sadly, this is what Christians do even. There are Christians who will condemn others, but they're gossips. There are Christians who will condemn others, but uh, they're not just even themselves. And by the way, when you go around critiquing people or having that attitude, you're out of your league, honestly. And normally you don't know all the facts. In fact, nearly all the time you don't know all the facts. And you don't see the big picture, that kind of thing. And normally the person who's critiquing is as guilty or worse in their lifestyle. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore thou art an excusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Notice, it's inexcusable, the Bible says. Doing something is bad or worse. And and really, who is worthy to critique? That's the bottom line. Somebody sent me this poem here recently. I'd like to read it to you. 
It says, I was shocked and stunned as I entered heaven's door. Not by all the beauty, nor the lights or its decor, but it was those in heaven who made me choke and gasp, the thieves and liars, the sinners, and all the other trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who stole lunch money twice, and next to him was my old neighbor who was anything but nice. And there was Bob, who I was sure was a rotting away in hell, sitting pretty on cloud nine and looking very well. Then I said to Jesus, how in heaven's sake could these all be in heaven? There must be some mistake. And why is everyone so quiet? Please give to me a clue. Hush, he said, they're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. (laughs) Yeah, that's the bottom line. You know, we need to learn to stop picking on others. We really do. And critiquing others. And honestly, as a New Testament church, we need to pull together. We need to work together. We need to get on the same end of the rope and on the same page. Who is worthy to critique? Honestly. Uh, Who is worthy to point a finger? Three point back at us, by the way, every time we point a finger. There's those three pointing back at us. Well, in verse number seven, it says, So when they continued asking him, He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Notice who had the most sense, the older ones. And then the youngest last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. You know, somebody described this scene by saying you could just see the conviction on the faces of these Pharisees. You could just hear the thud, thud, thud of the stones dropping into the dirt as the rocks dropped one after another. And the shuffling of the feet and the slinking away into the shadows of the Pharisees. And they were gone. And there lying on the ground was this woman, her her dress wrinkled and dusty, her hair disheveled and and the tear stains on her face and the nose running. And, and there she is. And we find in verse 10, When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. <clears throat> Go and sin no more. You know, the compassion of God erases condemnation. That's salvation in a nutshell. That's how you get to heaven. Because we are condemned. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. And we're born into this world in condemnation. Sinners, lost, and on the road to hell, going out into a Christless eternity. But the compassion of God sent Jesus Christ to this earth. And we quote that verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, well, Pastor, I'm a little confused here. Why is it that sometimes God condemns, and why is it sometimes that He shows compassion? I mean, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22, He said, stone people like that to death. And here in the New Testament, John chapter 8, we find Jesus Christ letting this gal off the hook. Well, first of all, you need to understand the difference between civil law and personal law. Now, this country is under civil law. And other countries are under civil law. And the civil law of those countries vary. 
When I was in the Holy Land years ago, in fact, Egypt's been in the news recently. I was in Egypt for a while. We were talking to uh, somebody from Egypt, and we asked him, what happens if a couple is caught in adultery in this country? He said, they're both hung from the city mosque on Friday morning. Uh, That's just the way they deal with it there. So every country has its own civil law. But then there's personal law. Personal law basically is how you treat people. That's the scenario here. The Jews were under Roman oppression at this time. So technically, they could do a mob thing and go carry this out, but they'd answer to Rome for that. And so really, it was a matter of Christ just pointing out, okay, uh, things as they are in that gray area like we are here, he that without, without sin cast that first stone. And we find out here that there is compassion for this lady. But the bottom line is, the compassion is given when there is repentance. And evidently, there was repentance on the part of this gal. In John 3 and verse 19, Jesus said this. He said, and this is the condemnation. That light, speaking of himself, is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. He said, I've come into this world. Here's the condemnation. People aren't repenting. They're hanging on to their sin. They love darkness rather than light. In fact, the verse before that one, Jesus said, He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You say, Pastor, what do I have to do in order to wind up in hell? Nothing. Nothing. You're born in sin. You need a new birth, a spiritual birth. You need to be born again the Bible way. It says, he that believeth not is condemned already. Notice that. Condemned already. Well, we find out that Jesus Christ, in verse number 10 at the end, says, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And here we find in the next verse the only words from this woman that we find recorded in the whole scenario. She said, No man, Lord. (laughs) No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now notice, he doesn't just sweep it under the carpet. He said, you're forgiven. You're pardoned. Here's a compassion extended to you. But don't do this again. Don't do that anymore. You know, we kind of think, oh, no big deal. He just sweeps it under the carpet. No, no. He says, don't do it again. He shows her grace, but he says, this better not happen again. You're guilty as charged, but I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In salvation, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But it adds, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You and I have no right after salvation to live any way we want. We have no right to walk in the flesh, but after the Spirit. So it starts with compassion. It leads to forgiveness. And finally, this woman now has hope. We've talked about the conditional mercy, the condemned malefactor, the compassionate Messiah. But let's make now the connected message. Finally, what is the connected message here? Yes, this was a different time, a different place, and different circumstances. But everything in the Bible is here for a reason. So we who live in the 21st century now, we who love the Lord, what can we learn from this? Well, let me just say this. There are those who are listening to my voice right now who long, they long to hear what this woman heard at the last part of verse 11, where Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Maybe you're here, maybe you're listening right now, and you live in self-condemnation. 
And you want to hear those words, neither do I condemn thee. Well, let me just give you a few thoughts here. If you're living in condemnation today, first of all, don't blame others for that. That's the norm. That's what we do. We pass the buck. We say, oh, if it wouldn't have been for so-and-so or this person or that snare and so on. And, and we actually won't come clean ourselves. Don't blame others. Normally, our problems are self-inflicted. Am I right? If we have issues, past, present, future, they're normally self-inflicted. This woman here made her own mess. She had made a mess here. Notice, she's not passing the buck. Actually, she's, she's not saying, where's the guy? And she's not saying that at all. It's her action that got her in trouble here. She knows that. By the way, it's our actions that get us in trouble. You say, well, no, it was what somebody else did. Well, then it's the way you reacted to it. The bottom line is, don't pass the buck. This woman didn't say, what about my partner? No, her silence here is an admission. She said, I, I, I caught, guilty as charged. Secondly, don't try and rationalize it. Don't try and justify it. Boy, the human heart is good at that. We can manipulate every situation and massage the facts and pretty soon we're looking pretty good. She's not trying to do that. Notice here she's not trying to rationalize it. She's not saying, well, I was raised on the wrong side of the tracks or I had this coach that molested me or I had this thing happen to me. No, she's not doing any of that. She's not trying to rationalize it all. She's taking her medicine here and it's humiliating. It's very humiliating here. But she's accepting the truth of the matter. And folks, we need to accept the truth of the matter here. Thirdly, Accept the forgiveness that God offers. Accept that forgiveness that God offers. In 1 John 1.9, it says, Now we, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, we have this promise here. One of over 7,500 promises in the Bible that if we just come clean, we confess our sin, even the bad attitude we've had about somebody wronging us, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's an amazing thing here is, is when we stop condemning ourselves and God stops condemning us, others won't condemn us either. And by the way, if you're here and somebody has offended you and you have condemned them, let me just say this. You need to forgive them. You need to forgive them. And if they're willing to repent, don't take pleasure in that, all right? That the heart's not right if we take pleasure in somebody else having to grovel and, and bow and so on and so forth. And, and, and we want to get even. That's, that's punitive and we're not interested in that. All we want is corrective, all right? So if somebody is, is, has offended you, let's just put it that way, and they're trying to make things right, be as nice as possible. And, and don't have the bad attitude. In fact, Galatians 6 one says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, resource such a one, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Careful of the flesh here. We can all get in the flesh and really try and give that person a hard time. But if there's correcting to be done, do it with a broken heart. Don't do it with glee. And don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a holier than thou. Don't be prideful like these guys, basically. That same passage, Galatians 6, 1, where it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual resources and one in the spirit of meekness, goes on and says, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And then it says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice, giving that forgiveness, that's the law of Christ. It really is. But it tells us here also, consider yourself. Anybody can mess up. And really, we all have this veiled pride where we rub our hands kind of gleefully if somebody's groveling a little bit and trying to get it right, that kind of thing. People need grace. 
And people need mercy and people need compassion. They really do. Not, not the twisting of the knife in the back, but that grace. This woman here is remorseful. This woman here is repentant. And Jesus sends her, sends her on her way with dignity and with grace. And really with an object lesson about grace. I believe she got saved. I believe this woman's in heaven today. I believe it was grace and the grace shown to her by Christ that helped her to connect the dots. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Have you ever been saved by grace? Have you ever been shown the compassion of Christ? Have you ever had a time in your life where anyone's ever pointed out to, the, to, to you from the Bible that salvation is free? I'll never forget that Thursday night in March of 1981 when that preacher showed me the gift of eternal life from the Bible. And in repentance, I was willing to turn from sin. And in faith, I was willing to turn to Christ and accept what He did for the payment for my sins. And I experienced grace that night. Have you experienced that grace? You know, last time we talked about the prodigal son and, and, and how he was ex- extended grace and And the father said, whatever you've done, son, just come home. It doesn't matter now. Just come home. You know, I said at the beginning that pity is not compassion. They're different. Pity is compassion with shoes on. In other words, we're going to do something to extend compassion to somebody. James 2.16 says, And if one of you say unto them, this person in need, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, What doth it profit? In other words, you haven't really shown compassion. You might show them pity. Oh, I feel bad for you. I'll be praying for you. And you know, that's our famous cliche, isn't it? I'll pray for you, brother. But really, compassion is a desire to reach out and to meet the need of somebody else and get involved. It's really rescuing a person in distress. And that's what God does. Before salvation, we're in distress. And He comes to our rescue. After salvation, we still make a mess of things, don't we? And I'm so thankful for the compassion of God. The Bible tells me in Lamentations 3.22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The compassion of God was waiting for me this morning when I got up. And you too as well. It's there every morning. Great is His faithfulness. May I say to you, if you're living in self-condemnation today, claim the promises of God. Claim this promise of God. 1 John 3.20 says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. The promises of God are greater than our self-condemnation. And God is greater than our heart. Reject the lie that Satan tells us that we cannot be forgiven. I have never seen anyone repentant come to God that he has rejected. In fact, in John 6.37 Christ says, in him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you're here today and you've never been born again the Bible way, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. You say, oh, you don't know what I've become. Christ died for you and now awaits you with compassion. We read in Romans 4, 7, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are are covered. We have somebody sitting over in this section right here who got saved on Friday night. And afterwards, between the the joy in her face and the the tears in her eyes, she explained how happy she was. Have you ever experienced that salvation? Blessed are they. That word means happy are they 
whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. I'm not talking about self-improvement here. I'm talking about a transformation. When we get saved the Bible way, and if you're here today and you have been saved, but you've wandered away from the Lord, and who hasn't? But you've wandered away from the Lord, come home. I'm not getting soft on sin. Don't, don't get me wrong. Christ wasn't being soft on sin here. In fact, He warns and warns, and I warn and warn and warn and warn against sin. But when we lapse into sin, and the self-condemnation comes crashing in, we find out there's compassion with the Lord when we're willing to repent. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.